Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. So, um, how many of y'all are familiar with the show Full House? Like, uh, okay, that, all right. How many of y'all, you've watched the new, the new ones? How many of y'all think the old ones are so much better? Okay. Um, so, we're doing a series called Full House, and we're talking about one of the things that sometimes you guys don't like to talk about. It's one of, the, one, of the, one of your F words that we just don't like to talk about, and it's family. We're going to be talking about family tonight and next week. And we're doing this series called Full House because how many of y'all, you, you wish that there, your house was bigger so that it would be quieter? Anybody like that? Or how many of y'all, you just wish people would be quiet whether your house is big or whether your house is small? Okay, so whether we have a big house, a small house, whether we have a lot of people in our family or a couple people in our family, um, we... We all look at this family on Full House, and this show was interesting because it was one of the first shows that showed a, what you call, non-ideal family. A lot of, like, sitcoms before that, you know, it was, it was a show where there was a mom and there was a dad and there were kids, and, you know, at the end, everybody made up and loved each other. Um, but Full House was different because it was three kids who lived with their dad and two uncles. <laughs> um, so it's not exactly what you would call the ideal family. Or like the picture-perfect family, right? And um, one of the reasons that they say that show got so popular is because, it sh- because people could identify, not necessarily because they live with their dad and two uncles, but they could identify with a family that's not like the ideal, it's not like the perfect family. And when we look at our families, when I look at the family I grew up in, and when you look at your family that you're growing up in, you probably realize that your family is not the picture-perfect 1960s ideal family. Some of your families put on a good like show when they come to church. You know, you were fighting all day. You know, you were fighting all morning getting ready, and you, know, you were taking a little too long in the bathroom. Your dad's like, you know, your dad's like pounding on the door. He's like, get out of there, we're going to church. And you're like, yeah. And you know, you're fighting all the way to church. You know, and then you, as soon as it's like the, the the final car door shuts and you're on the church parking lot. And people are, you're walking by people and you're like, you know, God bless you, brother. You know, like, good morning. Isn't it great to be in the house of the Lord? You know, and you, you go to church and then you get back on the car and you go right back. You know, so even if we present ourselves as a family that has it all together, most of us are a lot more like the full house family if we'd, if we'd admit it. Mine was like that. I grew up in a, the home of, you know, someone who was a pastor, one of the pastors here. And I can tell you for sure, we were not the ideal family. Still aren't the ideal family. So we're going to talk about two different parts of a non-ideal family, because we all live in a non-ideal family. And tonight, um, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about skeletons in your family's closet. Uh, skeletons in your family's closet. What, what in the world does that mean? Well, I have a definition. <laughs> First, here's how the, the saying came about. I looked this up in the dictionary because I'm smart. Um, It evokes the idea of someone having a corpse concealed in their home so long it had become decomposed but for its bones. Okay, I'll give you an example. Um, Long time ago, I was, I think, a freshman or something in high school, and John's family started coming to church. And if you've never met John's dad, like, he's like, I mean, maybe it's different, like, being the son, but he's like like probably one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Like, 
I was at Walmart the other day, and I hear from behind me somebody saying, God bless you, Brother Matt. It's good to see you. And I didn't even have to, I didn't even have to turn around. I was like, oh, it's Dane. You know, I turned around, and there it was, you know. And, um, yeah, so, like, they, like, the nicest family ever. So, like, when I started getting to know them, I'm like, they have to have, like, some bodies in the freezer or something. Like, they have to be axe murderers because nobody is that nice. You know what I mean? So, um, so, so, but when we think about skeletons in the closet... This is another definition of it, and it is an idiom, which but most of us aren't grammar scholars here, and we don't know it. Yeah, I, don't, I had to look up idiom then. Um, idiom is like a figure of speech to describe an undisclosed fact about someone, which, if revealed, would damn damage. <laughs> we'll edit that one out of the podcast. <laughs> damage. Damage. <laughs> All right. <laughs> can we, can we hit, let's hit rewind here. I'm going to read this again, okay? The definition of skeletons in the closet. It's a figure of speech used to describe an undisclosed fact about someone which, if revealed, would damage perceptions of that person. So, you know, if we're talking about skeletons in the closet, you know what I had to bring tonight, right? I had to bring a skeleton in the closet. So, um, so, so tonight, what the question is, is what is the skeleton in your family's closet? Let's plug that into our definition now. What is the undisclosed fact about your family, which, if revealed, would damage other people's perception of you? What's the thing about your family, about your family history, that if your friends found out, if the church found out, it would really change the way that, that people see you. What is that? We've all got it. You know, some of them, some of us, you know, the facts may be more shocking than others, but we've all got it. Some of you, you know, you portray, your family portrays itself as this picture-perfect family, but there's a lot of anger in your house. I looked up some facts about teens and about families. Check this out. Nearly half of all young people, all teenagers, 44%, have a step-sibling. 41% of teens born 2000 to 2010, that's you guys, were born into an unmarried household. So when you were born, you weren't born to a, a, a man and a woman who were married. Researchers now tell us that there's no, no longer one dominant family form. You know, there used to be a dominant family form. It's like a husband, a wife, and kids. Now there's no one dominant family form in the United States. Three in ten teenagers will experience a major change in their family structure, meaning someone moves in, someone moves out, or something to that effect. Two in teen tens live with a step-parent. One in ten teens are being raised by their grandparents. And 44% of marriages in which teens are, ch children are, are, are involved in, end in divorce. So, when we're talking about skeletons of the closet, you know, some of these things are shocking. And maybe some of you have, have that's been part of your family. Uh, but then there may be some of you who are like, none of that really applied to me. But... There's still some things that go on in my house. There's some things that used to go on in my house. There's some things that my parents used to be involved in that 
It, it just, it really bothers me. It really bothers me. What's the skeleton in your family's closet? Um, what's the skeleton? Sometimes it's easy to think that we're locked in. If our parents are that way or if our family's this way, we're just destined to become that way. But what if I told you there is a way that even though we can, obviously there's a lot about our family. And before, before we go any further, you guys like to put words in my mouth. So I'm, I'm, about to, I'm about to tell you. You can't tell anybody that I said this. What I did not say is that we should think poorly of our families. What I did not say is that we should in any way dishonor our parents. But there are still some things that we, that we deal with in our families that we just think, how, how is God involved in this? And am I going to end up like other people in my family? And does Jesus not like my family because my family is so different? Um, so what we're going to talk about tonight is what it means to have an encounter with Jesus. Because I truly believe if you have an encounter with Jesus, just like this guy we're going to study had an encounter with Jesus, having an encounter with Jesus will change your family tree. Because it did for this guy. We're going to talk about Jacob. If you have your Bible, open up to Genesis 32. Jacob is part of a very important family in the Bible. But he's also far, part of... I just said fart. He's also part... I'm just losing it today. Jacob was part of a very important family in the Bible. But he was also part of a very messed up family in the Bible. And some of us don't really realize just how messed up this family was. Remember when I said every family had a skeleton, has a skeleton in the closet? What's your family's skeleton in the closet? Jacob's family had a skeleton in the, in the closet, a stronghold that they couldn't break out of, and there, it was a pattern of thinking and a pattern of living that they just they couldn't shake. And this was Jacob's skeleton in the closet. Jacob's skeleton in the closet was deception. It was lying. You know, I've got the picture of good old Pinocchio. You remember his nose grew as he was, you know, as, as he was lying. Uh, Jacob came from a long line of liars and deceivers. And you know what Jacob ended up becoming himself? A liar and a deceiver. It was their skeleton in the closet. Because Jacob's great-grandfather, Jacob's grandfather was a guy, you may have heard of him. His name was Abraham. And he was kind of well-known in the Bible. And he's commended for his faith. But Abraham had this... Sin he couldn't shake, the stronghold of lying when he was afraid. He would lie. It was his go-to. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac lied. So we're going we're gonna to talk about this, and just keep your place there in Genesis 32. But we're going to talk about Jacob's family tree, and we're going to look at this skeleton in the closet. First thing we see, I'm just going to read it off the screen because it would be a little easier. Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, lied about his wife. Okay, this is one of those things that's just like face palm. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they had to go to Egypt because of a famine. Apparently, Sarah was pretty good looking. Like, she was a 10. And Abraham was concerned because he thought, oh, when I go into this foreign country, the king, the pharaoh, is going to see my wife and think she's so attractive that he's going to want her for his own wife, so he's going to kill me. Like, that happened back then. So Abraham told his wife, Sarah, instead of us pretending to be a married couple, let's just pretend like we're brother and sister. First off, ew. But you know, secondly, that's a lie. And what happened was Abraham got in big trouble for lying when if he would have just told the truth, it would have worked out better for him. The next thing, Abraham gets visited from God and God says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham's like, okay, that's great. Um, one problem, my wife's like 90-some years old. 
Um, you know, <laughs> not to get too detailed, but you know, that's just probably not going to happen. Um, so Abraham and his wife Sarah, they get together and they say, hey, I've got, we've, we've come up with this great idea. Sarah has this lady who works for her, this slave. And, hey, Abraham, why don't you have a baby with her? And he can be like, your baby. I'm sure that's going to work out great, right? Uh, so Abraham had a child with Sarah's um, servant and passed, tried to pass this child off as his own child. And God's like, Abraham, what are you doing? Fast forward. Sarah. Sarah, the grandmother. Abraham's wife lied to God. God says, Sarah, you're going to have a son. And Sarah's like, <laughs> that's funny. She's like, you know, that's a good knee slapper there, angel of God. And he's like, why did you laugh? She's like, I didn't laugh. I mean, how stupid can you be to lie to God? But she lied to God. She lied to God. Um, Lot, Abraham's nephew, um, Jacob's uncle, he lied a lot, and his daughters lied a lot. And not to get too graphic and too too detailed, but his daughters were, were, they were disappointed because they didn't have any sons, and they didn't have any husbands. So they said, let's get our dad drunk, and then we can have children with our dad. They lie to their dad. You think you got skeletons in your closet, right? Um, that, that, was his, that, was, that was Jacob's uncle. Isaac, Jacob's father, lied the same way Abraham did, the same way his dad did. He and his wife, um, Re- Rebecca, they went down to Egypt. and It's the same situation. Isaac's like, oh, man, you're Rachel's, you're, uh, Rebecca's pretty good looking. I don't want her to, yeah, I don't want me to get killed so this Pharaoh can take her as a wife. So I'm going to pretend like she's my sister, too. Like, how'd that work out for your dad, right? But he lies just like his daddy. When Jacob is born, they give him the name Jacob in Hebrew. We say it Jacob. Um, and the word literally means deceiver. It'd be like if I had a son. I was like, I think he's so cute. Like, I think I'm going to call him deceiver. I'm going to call him DC for short. You know, like, like, can you imagine what it was like to go around with the name Deceiver? Now, back then, what, what a lot of people in the Middle East would do is they would either A, name their, name their children after something that was like the birth circumstances. You know, like if the birth was incredibly painful, they would give the child a painful, like a name that represented pain. Um, sometimes they would give the child a name of, of, of a family sin that they hoped to avoid. So when they have this, you know, it's just the way they did it back then. So when, when, when Isaac and his wife Rebecca, they had twins, by the way. The first one was named Esau. The second was named Jacob. And they gave him the name Deceiver. And the reason that they gave him that name, because they did this back then, they were hoping that Jacob would not continue this family stronghold, this family trait, this skeleton in the closet. They were hoping it would end with him. There's this problem. Jacob deceives his brother. Esau was the firstborn, and the firstborn back then was was supposed to get all the birthright and the blessing from the father and all the possessions of the father when when he died, you know, the whole, like, will thing. Um, They didn't really split it up back then. It was like the oldest got everything, the youngest, oh, sorry, buddy. (laughs) You're like a twin, you're two minutes too late, you know. So um, Jacob tricks his brother Esau into it would be a fun story to just talk about, we don't have time, into giving up his birthright for a bowl of soup. He was a deal maker. He was a trickster. 
And he, he tricked it. Then, when it was time for his dad, Isaac, to actually give the blessing, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, gave him a step-by-step, like a tutorial, like 10 steps to deceive your father into giving your birthright. You know, A, he's blind, so dress up like Esau. Esau's a big hairy mountain man, so, so put some animal skins on. You know, put on your brother's shirt that smells like your brother. You know, do all these things, then go to your dad and ask for the birthright. And he does. And Jacob gives him the birthright. He gives him all the inheritance. Esau's out hunting in the field. Esau comes back, talks to dad. He's like, hey, dad, I'm ready to get that birthright. And blind dad is like, whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I done already gave that away. <laughs> and Esau, I mean, it says that Esau, we got, I guess we probably have some redheads in here. Nothing against redheads. Esau was a redhead. Yeah, and, you know, you, you know, you guys, when you get upset, like your face turns the color of your hair. It says Esau was a red. I mean, can you imagine? His face is blood. He was, he wanted to kill his brother. So Jacob fled. He left. He went and, 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 he, uh, he started, you know, he, he went to a different area, a different country. He started working for an uncle. The uncle's name was Laban. And um, this is another interesting part of the story. Um, Laban has a couple daughters. And there's one particular daughter that really caught Jacob's eye. Other than the fact that she was his cousin. But we're in West Virginia, so this shouldn't shock you. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, no, I'm joking. It was this, but he, he said, Rachel, yeah, he, he, tells, he tells Laban, this is, and this is, remember, this is Middle Eastern times, like, you know, 1,400 years before the birth of Christ, it was a long time ago, so marriage worked a little differently back then. He said, he said to Laban, how much you want for your daughter? How, yeah, remember, like I said, it was a little different back then. He said, how much for, the, for your blessing for me to marry your daughter? Laban says, work seven years for me. And then I'll give you my daughter's hand. And I wish we had time to read. It's so hilarious the way it's like the, when God inspired um, Moses and his team to write, to write Genesis, they had to be snickering when they wrote this. It says that, that uh, Jacob worked the seven years, but it seemed to seven days because of the love that Jacob had for, 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 for Rachel. So the seven days, the seven years is over. Jacob comes to Laban. He says, Laban. I, I'm, re- I'm ready. Like, I'm ready. Let's, let's have this wedding. Let's get this thing going. Laban says, all right. So back then, Jewish weddings, you know, it wasn't even Jewish back then. They didn't even have the Hebrew nation. It was Middle Eastern weddings. Um, not necessarily a good prescription for weddings today or ever because it involved a lot of alcohol back then. And Laban made sure that the alcohol flowed. And... That they hurried Jacob and his bride, who had a veil over her head, they hurried them into their honeymoon suite at the Laban Hotel. Jacob wakes up, probably a little hungover, and he looks at the girl laying next to him, and there's a problem. <laughs> that girl was not Rachel, <laughs> that girl was her sister Leah. And if you look it up in the Bible, it says that, yeah, it says that, um, how does it, it says, it says Rachel was beautiful in, in, um, I think form and in figure. And then it says Leah had, um, oh, I just lost the word. She, not lazy eyes. She had weak eyes, which meant that she just wasn't, 
She had a great personality, I guess. But <laughs> she just wasn't pretty. So Jacob rolls over. And, oh, hold on, hold on. I want to just read this. I want to read this. It's, the, it's one of the funniest verses in the Bible. It wasn't funny for Jacob. Hold on. <laughs> okay. Verse 25. When the morning came, there was Leah. <laughs> like, and it has an exclamation point. So Laban, Laban, tri- think about this. It's not only Jacob's uncle. Laban tricks the trickster. He deceives the deceiver. You would think, you would think that that would give Jacob, obviously, a taste of his own medicine and help him understand just how terrible of a thing it is to lie, to deceive. It would make him aware of just how, just how looming the skeleton in the closet of his life was, but it, it didn't. Because you see what happens next. You see what happens next. After he was deceived by Laban, he deceives Laban. He works another seven years and marries Rachel too, which, red flag, right? You know, two wives, probably not a good idea. Um, but he, I guess if they're sisters, you just have one mother-in-law still. But anyway, um, anyway, um, that's a lot to think about. <laughs> Let's stop thinking about that. Um, so he, he has his two wives and he's working for Laban. And he says, Laban, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go back to my land where my family's from. I'm ready to go. And Laban says, nah, I don't want you to go. You have a lot of my stuff. You have my daughters as your wives. You are not to go. So in the middle of the night, Laban packs up his, or uh, Jacob packs up his whole family. And he packs up everything they had. And he even, what we learn is, he even had his family take some things that belonged to Laban. And they left under the cloak of midnight. He's back at it again, isn't he? That skeleton in the closet, that family stronghold is still very strong. And then as Jacob's going back, first off, Laban catches him. And Jacob gets in big trouble, but they work it out. Then as he's coming back home, a messenger comes to him and says this. Your brother Esau is coming your way. And he has 400 fighting men. Probably not good, right? Big Red is mad, he's angry, and he's got an army. Not good. Jacob is about to come face to face with his skeleton in the closet. Jacob tries to do this kind of deceptive deal making with Esau. First, what he does is he says, he starts sending these presents to Esau ahead of him, like in waves, thinking maybe if Esau receives all these cattle and then all this money and then all this gold, maybe it'll kind of like soften him up a little bit. You know, maybe I can manipulate him a little bit. Like, you give me a free T-shirt, I'll pretty much do anything for a free T-shirt. You know, you tell me there's going to be food there, I'll come. You know, manipulation, this is Jacob's thing. He tries to manipulate Esau, and after he sends all that, he gets the message, Esau's still coming. Not, yeah, exactly. Uh-oh. Not good. So, what does he do? He sends his wife, or his wives, <laughs> and, and the rest of his kids, and the rest of the people that are part of his entourage, he sends them ahead of him. First off, what are you thinking? Maybe he's thinking, I can hide behind the women and children. Also not cool, right? Um, and as he's hiding behind them, it's night. And he's getting ready to fall asleep. 
And then he has this encounter with God. And he wrestles with God. And here's, here's, here's the passage. We spend a lot of time building up to just this one big fact that you need to know. And here's the passage. It's Genesis chapter 33, verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, two female servants and 11 sons, and crossed the fort of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. But Jacob replied, or oh, let's go back. Man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so his hip was wrenched and wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let, let me go, for it is daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob answered, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him, and he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. So Jacob lays down, and all of a sudden, this guy appears. We don't know how the wrestling match started, but Jacob starts wrestling with who we learn to be God, God himself. He has an encounter with Jesus. Now you laugh at this, you laugh at this, but listen, for some of this, this is your life. This is your life, and you're not the fat guy, by the way. This is your life. What we learn is, it says Jacob was wrestling with a man. So how do you say that Jacob had an encounter with God? Well, for a couple reasons. First off, it says that they call the place Peniel because um, it says that he saw God face to face. The second reason is when he asks him, who are you? He responds in a very Jesus-like way. Have you ever learned that Jesus always seemed to answer questions with questions? This is like classic Jesus right here. The third reason is because it says that after fighting and fighting and struggling and struggling, the man he was fighting against touched the socket of his hip and threw it out of place. And he all had something dislocated. I dislocated a shoulder when I was in high school, I think it was. Um, Fell off a four-wheeler. I'm a pretty tough guy. I don't cry in pain much. I cried like a girl. And I was in front of my friends, too, and I cried. So painful. They say you know, the hardest socket to get out of joint is your hip. It's one of the strongest, it's one of the, one of the stronger joints in your body. They say that in order to, if, if someone were to try to physically pop your hip out of socket, which hope, don't throw up when you think about that, it would take two people using both hands and all their force to pop it out of socket. What does it say about this man? It says that he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. This ain't no man. This is not just a man. It's the God man. It's God in a bod. It's Jesus. This is what we call a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So Jacob wrestles with Jesus. I've got a question for you. If Jacob's wrestling with Jesus, how in the world did Jacob last all night? Was he like a buff dude? Was he like the rock? Why did ja- how, how in the world could Jacob go toe-to-toe with Jesus just like this kid here going toe-to-toe with a sumo wrestler, how in the world could he last all night? First off, it's because Jacob was incredibly stubborn, just like some of us are. And the strongholds in Jacob's life, 
The skeletons in Jacob's closet were incredibly stubborn, just like some of the skeletons in your family's closet. The second thing is, at any moment in time, Jesus could have done more than touch his hip. Jesus could have just been like, bam, you're dead, right? But it shows the incredible patience of Jesus. It's kind of like sometimes I wrestle some of you guys and arm wrestle some of you guys and, you know, you're... I could easily overtake, and I'm not all of you, I mean, some of you really have some issues, but, you know, and I kind of just let you, I kind of let you sit there and kind of go back and forth with you, right? And then when the time's right, I just, bam, you know, slam your knuckles into the table. Jacob is struggling with Jesus, and I can just see Jesus, Jacob thinks he's fighting, going toe-to-toe with this man. Jesus is like this. <laughs> you know, he's like, oh, this is interesting, he's drinking a cup of coffee, you know, he's reading a newspaper, yeah, yeah. It's not that Jacob was so strong, it's that Jesus was so patient. And some of you, you, it's, it's not lying for some of you. For some, you. for some of you, it's other things. For some of you, it's like the alcoholism of your dad. Or you know, for, for, for some of you, it's, 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 it's the depression of your mom. Or you know, whatever it is that is, you feel like has been passed, from, from, you know, passed down into your family. Jesus is incredibly patient with you. But he wants to, he wants, he wants to have victory over this. And he wants you to have victory over this. So what do we see? Jacob has this encounter with God, and it leaves him changed. Um, it gives him a new name. It gives him a new name. Um, it gives him a new walk. First off, yeah, God changes his name. Like, that's another reason I believe this was Jesus. You know, I don't just walk up to Evan and say, Evan, I'm going to change your name. You're Steve now. You're no longer Evan. You're Steve. Like, I don't have, as a, just a person, I don't have the authority to do that. Unless Evan really likes the name Steve. He can go by that if he wants. Um, but Jesus says, listen, think about how significant this is. He heard it like this. Your name is no longer deceiver. You're no, you're no longer named after that skeleton in your family's closet. Your name is Israel, which means fighter, struggler. Most of the reason that he lied was always because of fear. And he says, now you're a fighter. He says, you're no longer a deceiver, you're a fighter. That's huge. He gives him a new name, and then he gives him a new walk. He had an encounter with God, and he was changed. He was never going to walk the same. He was always walking like this now, you know? And they're like, well, Jacob, what are you doing, man? You got a little hitch in your giddy-up. He's like, yeah, I met God. I met Jesus. I walk differently now. I live differently now. I tell the truth now. I'm a different person now. Um, he had a new relationship with God. It says he saw him face-to-face. And finally, he had a new relationship with his family. Jacob had a son. His son's name was Joseph. Joseph spent years and years in prison because when given the opportunity to lie, he did what was right and told the truth. The turning point in Jacob's life, the factor in Jacob's life was this moment when he met with God. And he went toe-to-toe with God, and it wasn't that he overtook God. We think of Jacob wrestling with God. We think of Jacob like, I'm going to make God do what I want him to do. No, it was when Jacob yielded to God. When Jacob gave what he was struggling with, that, that, that stronghold, that skeleton in the closet, he gave it to God. So what about you? Have you had an encounter with Jesus? Have you had an encounter with Jesus? Some of you are like this with Jesus. And I feel like Jesus is doing the same thing. He's like, you know, drinking a cup of coffee, reading the papers. You're, you're fighting and you're struggling against Jesus. He's like, I wonder when they're finally going to give in. I wonder when they're finally going give to give their heart to me. Is this you? Is this the way you feel? Um, an encounter with God will change your family tree. Um, so application. First thing to do, first thing to do, hey, I always give you stuff to do. The first thing I want you to do is go away. 
I'm not saying like go away from here and never come back. It's not like run Simba and never come back. Um, what I'm saying is get by yourself. Jacob, it's interesting, the times that God speaks to Jacob were always when he was by himself. Be by yourself. Yeah, if you're in a crazy family with a long, yeah, with, with, a, yeah, with, a, with a loud noises, you may need to like lock yourself in the bathroom, go down to the basement, like go to some really random weird place. Turn off your phone, put it in another room. Leave any electronic device in another room and spend time with God. God, Jacob didn't hear from God until all the distractions were out of his life. The second thing, give up. Stop fighting. Some of y'all are fighting. And you have this way of thinking that you're locked into because, you're, because your, par- your parents or your brother or your sister, their go-to thing is always anger. It's always like you're lashing out at people. And so so that, that's turned into your pattern of thinking. And you're the, you're la- you find yourself lashing out at people. And you find yourself doing those things that you wish you couldn't do. Give up. Give it to God. Then the final thing is get real. Admit your need for God. Jacob re- finally realized his need for God when, 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 Jesus t- when Jesus totally disabled him with one touch. Jacob held on to this man for dear life and says, I won't leave until you bless me, because I need you in my life. Some of y'all really don't like the family situation you're in. Some of you are actually, you know, you're in difficult family situations. You think things will get better when I get out. No, things will get better when you have an encounter with God. So we were supposed to end a little early tonight. Um, we're still ending a little, just a little bit early. Um, so I just want to give you some time to have the prayer time at the end. So what I want, I want to ask you to do is just bow your head, close your eyes just for a second. We're not going to, I'm not going to drag this thing out or make it long, but I, I want to give you the opportunity. I want to give you a moment uh, to kind of get alone with God. Uh, so don't look at the person next to you or the person in front of you or behind you. Um, just think about you, God, and your family. And when I said skeleton in your family's closet, what did you think? What came to your mind? Um, what I want to ask you to do today or this evening um, is instead of praying for somebody else in the room tonight, what I want you to do is I want you to come and pray for your family. Pray for your mom, your dad, your stepmom, your stepdad, your brother, sister, step-siblings, grandparents. Um, Ask God, ask God to change your life, and that as he changes your life, we'll start to see change in our families. Um, If if you've never had an encounter with God, if you've never... um, given your heart to God and you're struggling and you're struggling and you just, you need someone to talk to, you need someone to pray with you. Uh, when everybody else is coming up front to pray for their families, um, go to the back and find one of our leaders and they would love to pray with you. They'd love to talk to you. Uh, so I asked Cassidy if she'd just play a little music and we're just gonna spend a couple minutes before we leave um, praying for our family. So if you'll join me up front, we're gonna pray. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.